Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 239 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Huibo Ho, a landscape photographer originally from China, now living in San Diego. Her photography has a very consistent look and feel to it, which is something that I think a lot of photographers strive to achieve. She predominantly creates images in the black and white style, and her images are quite stunning. Her name consistently comes to mind when photographers are asked who currently inspires them. We covered a ton of awesome topics this week, so stay tuned. Well, I want to thank our newest patron over on Patreon, Dan Bradford. Dan chose to support the podcast using the annual plan, which saves him money and also sustains my efforts here for months to come. Thank you, Dan, and everyone else who have stepped up to keep this project alive. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to remind you to check out Michael Torkelson's book over on Kickstarter. It's called A Photographer's Guide to Composition, Unlock the Hidden Language of Photography, and Create Images with Impact. Michael's book will open up a world of photographic opportunities for you with his intuitive approach to composition. I personally think it's a great resource for photographers of all levels, and especially if you've been struggling lately or want to take your photography to the next level. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more about his project. Okay, let's get to the show. All right. Ho, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, let me just say that a little quick story. So uh, a friend of mine, my, Michael Bellino, and I were on a hike last summer, and we were just talking to each other about photographers who were kind of inspiring to us. And we were having a really hard time, actually, coming up with names of people that were kind of new and fresh and different. Um, but your name definitely came up for both of us. And your name also has come up in conversation with my friend Alex Noriega as well. So you're, you are esteemed among many of my friends. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that and flattered, um, to be honest with you. So thank you very much. Thank, thanks, uh, Michael. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm really enjoying the work that you're producing. And one of the things that I can say about your work is that it kind of has that quality to it to where when you see it uh you know it you know it's yours which is a really cool thing to have with your photography so uh keep up the great work there oh thank you um i'm really glad to to hear that and yeah, of course also i would say i've i've listened to many of your bar, uh, podcasts and so many photographers who i admire have been honest so this is really an honor to do it oh, cool awesome well, um, before we dive really deep into the episode, I would love for you to just kind of introduce yourself and, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, um, and, you know, just let us get to know you a little bit. Uh, yeah, I am based in San Diego, uh, California, but I grew up in China. Um, I moved to U.S. in 1995 to pursue my graduate degree in electrical and computer engineering. Um, Two years later, I decided to drop out of my PhD program um, and move to San Diego, uh, start working for a wireless communication company um, as an engineer in uh, cell phone de chip design industry. 
so this was my first job and、um, my only job so far.、Um, I ended up working for the same company for almost twenty one years before I left、uh, left it in two thousand eighteen. So、wow. now, yeah. So now I am a, a full time mom、um, and a part time landscape photographer, if I can call me one.、Um, my main interest is landscape photography、um, with a, a focus in black and white. So、yeah. that's that's a brief introduction about myself. When when did you decide to pick up a camera? Um. That's about like late 1998 or maybe early 1999. So shortly after I moved to San Diego. Yeah, I saw you have some photographs on your website from from China itself,、um, which I was super jealous of because they have those massive, you know, mountains, which I'm a huge fan of. But、um, it looks like you've been able to go back and visit、uh, your homeland and, and make some images there. Uh, a few times, yes.、Um, in fact, my first big photography focus trip、uh, was back to China,、uh, western part, like a Tibetan region.、Um, that that part,、um, I spent.、Uh, I basically accumulated all my vacation that year. I think that was two thousand six, and I spent a month、uh, in that region. And、um, that was my.、Um, Once a lifetime, I don't know if that's the right word to the trip, and I, that trip really helped shape me a lot in terms of becoming a landscape photographer.、Um, then、uh, lately, like in two thousand eighteen, I was able to go back, made made another similar trip,、um, but in between, because of the you know family visit and just going back to see all the relatives and family, I was able to、uh, photograph a little bit, but those are more. Like family oriented, not really photography、uh, focused. Gotcha. Well, let's let's dive into your journey into landscape photography. I'd be really curious to learn about kind of what got you interested in photography as a medium of creative expression, and 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 then maybe follow that up with why you've gravitated towards the black and white format. Sure.、Um... My interest in photography, like I said, started、um, quite some time ago,、uh, in uh, 1999, 1998, or maybe early 1999.、Um, actually,、um, the reason how I started was triggered by、um, my parents came to visit me from China, so I I took them、um, to see all these famous places like Grand Canyon, the Yosemite, and all that, and. The sceneries were obviously very like awesome and impressive, but my pictures were not. So,、um, so at that time, I naturally blamed everything on my like little point and shoot camera, and I start to think,、hmm, how can I improve this?、Um, so, after some research and talking to my friends, and I decided to buy a SLR,、um, hoping to really improve my techniques. Uh, so you can see when I started doing it,、uh, getting into photography, my purpose was very simple. I just want to、uh, reproduce what I what I saw.、Um, then I started taking a few classes in、um, UC San Diego、uh, Extension. They have a pretty good、uh, photography program,、uh, so I took some classes.、Um, but then for the first few years, I would say. I was a very casual hobbyist.、Uh, 
um, I, I didn't do it very often. Um, I, I probably would only touch my camera uh, during my vacations, uh, which were about twice a year kind of thing. So, um, but I enjoyed doing it. Um, it just, my learning was pretty slow. Um, around 2004, I moved to digital because when I started, it was still film. Um, and then around 2004, I moved to digital from film and started learning like post-processing techniques and all that. Um, then as 2006 was a quite important year for me. As I mentioned, I, that year I made this trip back to China, spent a month in the Tibetan region and came back with lots of pictures that I love. And even today, I still uh, like quite a few of them. Um, but prior to that, um, I attended my first workshop, photography workshop in uh, Mountain Light Gallery, the late Galen Rouse Gallery oh, yeah. in Bishop, yeah. uh, California. Um, and the instructor for the one I, uh, for the workshop I attended was a famous um, Zhang Sha. So he was an instructor. Um, I learned a lot. And that was my first time I got to see how um, a master at work in the field. Um, so I was really inspired. And at the same time, the, the staff members uh, from the gallery was very, they were all very friendly and helpful. Um, so I, I learned a lot and, you know, I was very overwhelmed and came back with a long list of the equipment to upgrade and a lot of things to, to read and all that sort of thing. Um, then I had that big trip back to China. So I, then when I came back from it, I, I thought, wow, this was a really great year for me. I learned a lot and it was, um, I felt I made quite a, a bit progress. I was really pumped up for more. Um, but then life doesn't always go as what I like, right? <laughs> so after this big trip, I came back and my day job, uh, again, really consumed me. And I just hardly find any time to do it anymore. Um, and then in 2008, my son was born. Um, initially I thought maybe, uh, you know, after he's born, I can do a lot of portrait. I even bought the studio lighting and all that, but then, you know, it's completely different. The reality is quite different. So it was just too hard to juggle between a very demanding job and, um, a new family. And uh, so there was really no place for a serious hobby. So I decided to put it aside, to put it aside, um, almost completely, uh, for a while. And this while lasted for about six years. Oh, wow. Um, so except for um, taking some family photos, I hardly you know, touched my my cameras. Um, so I didn't really, initially I didn't expect this break lasted so long. In fact, um, around 2012, I thought, okay, this is time for me to come back. So I, I, I tried it. And at that time, I thought the best way to make myself do it again uh, was to attend another workshop. So uh, I attended a workshop uh, led by Michael Gordon and Guy Tao in Death Valley. Good, good yes. choice. Yeah, and this was my, <laughs> definitely was a good choice. Um, this was my second workshop. And again, learned a lot. And, uh, um, you know, but unfortunately, after I came back home again, um, and I found, I found myself not able to spend time on it. So um, fast forward to late 2014 and early 2015, um, 
I finally decided um, that I just had to do, start doing it again. Um, but after not doing it for so long, um, it was a bit like painful to pick it up again to get back to into that zone. Um, but somehow, you know, I managed it. So then in 2018, I left my job. Um, my friends would say, now, now you have more time to do photography, which is true. But, um, you know, first and foremost, um, I'm a mom, I'm a full-time mom. Uh, so my kiddos schedule and activities basically uh, still limit where uh, and when I can do photography pretty much. Uh, and all my photography trips and outings um, have to be carefully coordinated with, uh, you know, my son's schedule and my husband's schedule and all that. So um, I re- I still really can't travel much. Um, but on the other hand, I don't really mind it. You know, kids are growing so fast and there are really only a few years left, um, you know, that we can spend together as a family. So I still, you know, I'm cherishing the time we spend as a family. In the meantime, I can squeeze in some photography. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's basically that, how I started. That's awesome. And, and why, why did you gravitate towards black and white? Um, it was Michael I, Gordon, wasn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, you know, I think this is really uh, a personal preference. Um over the years, because um, I constantly look at other people, look at other people's work, and I just noticed that I'm I'm naturally drawn to black and white images for some reason. Uh, whenever I see a good black and white photo, um, I just feel I respond more profoundly towards it. Um, with a reason I don't, I can't really explain very clearly. Maybe black and white um, to me. In, for certain cases or for certain contents or subjects, uh, certain compositions, uh, lighting, etc., it's just um, capable of touching people in a more profound way without the distraction of color, I guess. Um, so I just fell in love with it. Um, I say a good, I usually say a good black and white photo can make my heart skip a beat. So I, I think it's just how each person is naturally. Uh, we respond differently to different genres of images, movies, music, books, right? Um, so, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your questions, but I just I just noticed that I'm more naturally drawn to it. Um, although I uh, primarily do black and white, I also I still do color as well um, because you know certain photos I think it definitely suits color more and I don't want to force it so you can you still find I, I have some color images yeah I think what's interesting about black and white is that it it like you said it gets rid of you know one of the things that you have to think about which is color and it forces you to emphasize shapes and contrast and light yeah. in a way that color doesn't always allow you to yeah, yeah. Uh, and another, re- another reason that I can tell for why I like it so much is I think it just clicks with my creative desire, I would say. Um, you know, comparing to color, um, which is to me, it should, it should be more representative to reality. Um, black and white gives me more freedom to mm-hmm. depart from it, to get more right. creative. 
um, I mean, the reason is obvious that black and white is not reality. We do not directly see it. Uh, so it really depends on us photographers to decide how to interpret color into different tones, different shades of grays. Um, so I think it is essentially a type of an abstract, in my opinion, and that is a tonal abstract uh, from the colored subjects. So, so for me, it gives me that um, satisfaction to um, undercover this potential and transform the color reality into a black-white uh, vision. Um, so I found it, it just clicks with me, clicks with my that creative side. Earlier you had mentioned that uh, when you first started in photography, it was primarily a way to kind of document the experiences and the places that you visited. And then obviously you've shifted more towards this um, kind of creative abstraction with black and white where you do a lot of um, dodging and burning it looks like and things of that nature i'm curious kind of what that transition has looked like for you in terms Mm -hmm. of using photography as a mode of self-expression versus a mode of document documenting experience Mm. so so basically actually i um thought about how i evolved in the last um few years. Uh, although I started early, like I said, I was very casual. Um, you know, it was a hobby to start with. Um, and lately, the recent five or six years, I was able to uh, improve a lot and evolve a lot because I was able to spend relatively a bit more time in it. So I was thinking back that how my photography uh, was involved in those years as I said, when and you also mentioned when I started, I was more um, trying to reproduce and document and trying to do the thing, the justice, um, right? And just to show, you know, how beautiful um, it, um, it is. And so I was trying to strive to make technical, technically sound, uh, beautiful picture. So then I think it naturally evolved into chasing to be um, aesthetically beautiful. Um, during this time, I primarily look for aesthetics. You know, if it's very pleasing uh, to the eye, it's a good photo to me at that time. Um, I most ca- just care about whether my image has captured the best lighting, the atmosphere, best compositions, flawless uh, post-processing, and all that. So basically, I'm chasing the, the aesthetics, trying to make it perfect. So during this time, I started doing black and white, um, and I quite like it. Then I think I evolved into trying to be expressive uh, after doing doing that for a while. I want to use the images to con- convey emotions and mood, um, and hopefully can also evolve, evoke viewers' uh, resonance. Mm-hmm. So um, black and white then, and at least to me, like I said, in certain cases, I just found it is more effective to convey emotion and mood. Um, so I really fell in love, in love with that. Then this is evolving into uh, trying to be more, uh, you know, I, I talk about being expressive. Then this slowly evolved into being personally expressive mm-hmm. um, and focus more on being personal and more on searching something more unique, like unique vision. 
so now I want to use it as an art form to show how I would observe uh, and interpret the nature and landscape. Um, so that is originally I want to you know focus on technical things and making aesthetically beautiful, but now I care more about whether my images um, have creativity or show uh, special connections from my personal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, you know, I can call this stage as going beyond the aesthetics. Um, I haven't gone beyond the stage yet, and I think I'm still trying to figure everything out, but I'm, I think I'm slowly um, going toward that way. Um, previously, I, when I photograph, I never really put a lot of thoughts in it. Um, I, you know, I strive for, like I said, I strive for technical things and strive for aesthetic uh, perfection. But now I'd ask, um, where are the souls in these images? Or are they just being beautiful? Is there anything in these images that represent me, my angle views, uh, and my ideas? Uh, or is it actually rep- uh, represent somebody else's vision, which I'm just reproducing them? Um, so after a while, um, I think, um, you know, it, it pushes me to think this way that I need to go beyond aesthetics. I need to, to dig a little deeper that where's my unique angle looking at the subject? Where's my story to tell? Um, so this thinking process or the process of searching my own vision, like I said, I'm still in the middle of it. I, I, I don't, I don't think I have figured it out yet. To be honest, it's actually, it's a, it's a painful process. I don't know if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Um, you know, you know, it's there, but you don't know where it is yet and how to consistently use it. So I'm, I think I'm doing that process. Uh, what, what kind of methods or techniques are you doing in order to kind of tap into that or to facilitate that growth? Um, so I don't know if this, if this makes sense, but, um, one specific thing, specific thing coming to mind, I found useful for myself is, um, um, look at my favorite past photo by their subjects, things, instead of, you know, just tied with the locations. Um, then when I look at photos with similar subject or theme, I try to ask myself, what are the most important things in these images that really speak to me, that made me want to capture them in the, fir- uh, in the first place? Is there anything common or co- uh, cohesive among them? Uh, it can be their atmosphere. It can be something they represent, like some sort of spirit of the place or something. Um, but I'm not saying by doing this, I can find or discover uh, what the image, my images say about me, but I, I just found it's helpful um, to discover new ideas, um, maybe help, also helpful to discover um, myself. Um, so for example, um, one day I was looking at some of, some of my favorite photos across multiple subjects and location portfolios, um, and it suddenly hits me. I realized although these photos were taken at different locations and with different contexts, different subject matters, but a lot of them have one common thing um, is I noticed that they try to... Um, how should I say it, spark a leap of imagination. Um, I realized that I enjoyed photographing them not because they are pretty, but more importantly, they they can trigger uh, imaginations. Um, 
And I also love the fact is if I did a good job presenting them through my photographs, they may be able to spark my viewer's imagination. So once I realized this, I felt I understood myself a little better. I, I thought this is um, some common thing behind a lot of my photographs if I dig deeper, I, if I go beyond what the uh, subject uh, literally are in the image. Um, so this actually led me to put together a small collection of my past photos, which I call uh, I call it uh, Enchanted Rocks. Um, and it led to my um, actually led to my second publication on lens work this year. Um, each of these images, when I shot them in the field, I know they made you know they 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 made my imagination kind of run wild because of their particular shapes or formations or textures, etc. And some of these rocks are like legendary, very well known, um, but some are completely unknown and just discovered them in our local beach. But these images to me convey, uh, you know, the mystery and magic, which is which is the reason why I love to photograph them in the first place. So this made me realize that, um, you know, it sort of liberated me from only associating my photos with their location, but rather I should start thinking about uh, my images in terms of themes, ideas, messages behind them, uh, thinking about them in terms of what they represent and what I want them to tell. So actually, so I, you know, I don't know if this example explained that some of the process I'm going through, um, but I, I think I only scratched surface that there are a lot of other ways to search, um, you know, a person's unique vision, but so I, I know there's a lot to do. Yeah. I'm just curious more on the how of that, you know, in terms of looking at a body of work and then trying to categorize um, images into different ideas or things that they're trying to communicate or themes or whatever it's it seems like there's a lot you have to give yourself a lot of uh, I don't know freedom to <laughs> uh, you know make a guess I guess I, I don't know it's like because it I mean I'm wondering if it if it's immediately obvious if, if you look at some of your images like oh that conveys mystery or mm. that conveys um, excitement like how like how do you know what it's conveying or does it take you a little bit of time to kind of think through that um i think let me first understand the question is basically how i actually find something unique about images or is it about exactly how this image to convey and am i actually am i clear about them is that what yeah, you're saying I think it's more the second, and then you're like when you're looking at your images, how do you know what they are conveying? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think a lot of times when we uh, when I'm in the field is basically just respond to it. It's not something I can put a label on it yet, right? Because you just go with your instinct, goes in respond to what you see, what you feel. Um, but uh, sometimes it can be very vague, obviously, and sometimes it can be very clear. So, but, you know, we just make the shots anyway, because you, you, you feel there's something there. You want to, you want to do it, right? You respond to it. And then sometimes when, when I come back and look at it, um, and I think this is time I need to dig deeper to see, hey, what exactly I felt at the scene, um, and try to, um, and then try to use, um, a visual language to describe it. Um, yeah, you're right. That a lot of times I still cannot describe. It. I just know something there. 
Um, but sometimes by intentionally pushing myself to dig deeper, to think deeper, and I can uh, I can slowly derive into okay, this is actually what I want to convey, and this is what I felt at the scene, and this is what I you know want to use my image to communicate that feeling. Gotcha. But not all the time, but sometimes I was able to do it. So I don't know why this question came into my head, but I'm really curious to ask it. So when you're doing that. Um, I'm guessing you're either writing it down or you're putting it in Lightroom or something like that. But, you know, in terms of the words that you're using to kind of describe what, what the image is conveying, are you doing that in English or are you doing it in your <laughs> native language? And if, if you're using your native language, are there words that express an idea that don't necessarily translate into English? Uh, yeah, it's actually an interesting question. Actually, I do both. You know, come and uh, after living in the U.S. for so long, and some of the feelings actually nat- would naturally come to me in English, but still, some of the feelings I can only describe in my native language. <laughs> so, um, I actually do find it um, hard to find exactly equivalent words one way or the other. So sometimes I will actually search online to see, hey, how exactly I want to describe this in English or the other way, right? It's hard. Um, so yeah, to be honest with you, I do go through that. Interesting. Do you feel like your um, biculturalism is like give you an advantage in terms of having access to um, different types of ideas? Because um, I think that's a you know that's kind of the foundation of language is expressing ideas and. And what I've come to understand is that not all languages have words for the same things. And so exactly. Yeah. I'm curious if that gives you some kind of an advantage that perhaps I don't have. Um, that's an interesting question. Actually, I never really thought if it gives me an advantage. Um, but um, I learned my photography here in the U.S. I started here. Uh, and the books I read and the class I took, they're all in, you know, from here. So I think I'm more in tune with the philosophies or um, ideas or the styles of whatever we see is all from, um, you know, on the U.S. side. Um, but uh, I think, you know, what I think uh, whenever I learned uh, when I grew up, obviously would impact me for what my interest, for what I want to photograph, right? Those that still have the influence on me. So... Um, and Chinese culture obviously is very different. Um, so if I do, did I have um, unconsciously have mixed of all of them together? I think they definitely should be, but I just never really um, think that way. Not yet, but it's a very interesting um, thing that you mentioned. Maybe I will actually will think a little deeper toward that. Yeah, I don't know where to attribute this quote to, and I'm going to butcher it, but uh, I think there's this idea that, you know, interesting people make interesting artwork, right? And I think people that have had kind of a wide variety of experiences, you know, growing up in multiple different cultures, Mm. um, being exposed to different languages, maybe they've had a very interesting upbringing, or maybe they've had challenges with substance abuse, or Mm. maybe, you know, interesting family dynamics, whatever. I think that sometimes can be ingredients but through which um, I think people can tap into to make more interesting uh, artwork. Whereas someone who has a relatively boring uh, background like myself, 
I don't necessarily have all that stuff to tap into. <laughs> um, well, I, I actually definitely agree on interesting, and the quotes you mentioned, interest, people make interesting photographs, um, because I think um, uh, photography visions come from who we are. Um, so, you know, it's, it's basically, it represents us, it's, um, you know, it, it, it cannot be forced, it just, it should be naturally calm. And um, of course you can develop it. I think the, um, the, you know, not many people are naturally born with a gift, uh, a talent, but I think we all can develop our style and vision um, as we have more life experiences and stories and everything, interest, knowledge in certain field. And if we can, and the more we deposit into it and the more, um, possibility that our intuition will come when we see certain things and make us to um, think, hey, I should, I can observe this way, I can interpret that way, right? This is what I want to show it, um, show it to other people that how I see it, how I feel it. So um, I, I think definitely that that's true. Yeah. So I'm also curious, um, you know, you've been on this kind of path and journey of uh, creative expression and personal expression. I'm curious what else you've learned about yourself through this process that perhaps it was surprising or that you've been able to, to leverage into your artwork. Um, so another thing I feel like uh, I would like to mention that, um, which is also kind of uh, is, in, in, is in the process of evolving for me, uh, is that in recent years, my mindset has shifted somewhat away from doing best moment single image into like doing more of a group of images mm-hmm. uh, or series, small portfolios. Um, because I started to feel while chasing single perfect, perfect image um, is still a very nice way doing for, uh, photography. A lot of other times, it is very hard to complete the story with a single image, but usually uh, requires multiple images to complete and solidify the message or story. Um, so, so far, I have been a largely uh, a single image person, um, or rather the best moment of, uh, photographer. I don't know if it's the right name or not. Um, very fr- uh, frequently, I have that mentality trying to pursue those moments when everything aligns, um, then gets very disappointed when things are not. So, (laughs) but there's really nothing wrong with that approach. But to me, by moving away from it, it sort of uh, liberated me from trying to get that perfect shot mentality, um, as well as satisfied with that perfect shot and then nothing else would really matter mentality. Right. (laughs) um, So because of this, uh, because that mentality, if I'm not careful, can prevent me prevent me from seeing many many uh, other photo opportunities and hinder me from digging digging deep into the subject matter. Um, but on the other hand, like I said, I'm still in the process of it. I definitely, you know, have a, a lot to learn on it. Um, I found moving toward that direction, that approach, is not easy for me. It's very hard um, because for me to come up with series of images with a cohesive and still need to be unique 
or interesting idea behind all of them um, with each of the image in the series complementing each other to tell a better story is very challenging. Um, but um, I believe this can help me to grow. And once I'm able to figure that out and get fluent doing that, I can apply it to many, many projects. Yeah. So I think that's what ideas mean. Um, so by now, I, I maybe started getting a, a, a very small taste of it. And so far, I really love it. Um, but again, it's just the beginning and um, there is a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I think that's one of the most awesome things about photography is that it it can be a lifelong journey of discovering yes. things. And I think that's the right attitude to have for sure. And I, I had a similar um, kind of wake up call in terms of chasing perfect moments um, about four years ago. I was... Well, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I, I, I totally know what you're talking about. Like you, you know, you have this idea of the perfect moment in your mind and then it doesn't happen. And then it prevents you from seeing all these other things that are right in front of you that are also perfectly awesome ideas to capture. So um, I think it's good to have an open mind and yeah. maybe, maybe that's a great uh, segue into the next question that I had, because I think this is, um, this is something a lot of people struggle with. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, landscape photography is a lot like hunters versus gatherers, which I think is kind of what we're talking about. Um, you know, where hunters are those people that kind of have a pre-visualized plan of what image they want to make and then gatherers react to what they find in the field. And so I'm curious kind of which one you think you are and why. Um, I have been always a mix of both, I would say. Um, previously, I am more of a 50-50% kind of person. Uh, um, for certain subjects and locations, I don't know why, I just have this uh, fixed mind and preconceived images. Um, I just have to get those uh, type of thing. Then sometimes um, for the other uh, occasions or subject locations, I, I'm pretty open and receptive. Uh, but nowadays, I'm more shifting towards becoming the gatherers, as you say. Um, I, I think I, you know, I've heard in some of your podcasts, I think yourself and many others also talk about it. Um, I, it looks like I think this is a natural course that people would, you know, grow into. Um, I don't know if that's the right way to say, it, but I feel that people are, you know, after doing it a while, there's a common trend that we all kind of grow into, into this direction. So I still do some of the planning um, nowadays, especially if I travel somewhere far and expensive. Um, yeah, uh, since these are not easy for me to go um, and I don't get to do it very often. So I plan, I have to plan. I, I, would, uh, you know, I would do homework and just to get to know the place. Um, I study other people's work to kind of know what the place look like and in order to make my trip more efficient. Uh, like where should we stay in order to like be close to you know, where we want to photograph and things like that. Yeah, um, then for this type of like big trip, um, after the initial travel plan is set, is made, then I will try to avoid looking at other people's work to this place for a period of time prior to travel 
just hoping to clear out my memory. Um, sometimes can be successful, sometimes not successful. Um, then when I'm in the field, um, like if this is an iconic place, um, which probably is impossible to forget what other people have done. Sure. I usually will still take a safety shot, uh, the iconic shot. Then I would uh, intentionally move away to find something, trying to find something my own. Um, so many people find images online that they like, and then they try to mimic it. Uh, if this, but then I, um, my opinion on this is if these images, if they represent a, you know, some photographer's personal style or his particular way of seeing, um, I actually think I should respect that by intentionally not to reproduce it. And, uh, um, you know, not to reproduce the exact same image or something similar, but what's important is to learn what's the essence of that image. What can I learn from how he sees things, how he observes things, or maybe his post-processing techniques and all that, and try to apply that to to the subjects I like and to the locations I am in and stuff like that. Um, but then for like places that I have more access that I can return again and again, um, I don't really do much planning anymore. I, I, you know, I, I probably just need to plan for a general area and time, um, you know, that I want to photograph. Then basically just try to have a complete open mind and fresh eyes and mind uh, to free myself from, you know, these preoccupied expectations. I think, I think you're also very much in this concept, right? Um, that, uh, I can tell you actually that's by doing this is actually really helped me. Um, so my own experience, actually, I can tell an example from my own experience on this. Um, for example, Death Valley. Um, Death Valley is, uh, is relatively close to where I live at like five hours driving. So um, I went there a couple of times quite a few years ago um, with some sort of like very fixed mind um, and the preconceived right. compositions. Right. Sabrisky Point, uh, exactly. Racetrack. <laughs> uh, yeah, like all the San classic. Duke. Yeah, right, right. right. San Diego. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Zabriskie Point. Mesquite Point. Mesquite yeah. Dunes, yeah. To the point of that I actually bypassed the area because I, you know, I only had the one image in mind and after taking it, I don't know what else I could do. And I thought that's, you know, basically that is for tourists. I even don't go that area anymore at that time. I'll come back to that though. Um, but mostly what uh, the, my favorite, my favorite subject in Death Valley is obviously the sand dunes. So I always have this um, fixed idea, like nice foreground with great lines and patterns that can lead viewers' eyes, right? And give, um, using the very wide angle lens to give uh, viewers that punch, the visual punch. And most often I would include the sky as well. But then I found out to produce a perfect image with this idea, I need the pristine foreground free of footprints and uh, I need perfect lines and interesting patterns. And I also seek for dramatic skies and lights and all that. And this is very hard to do. Yeah. And And on top of it, if I want to I want to be even better and top it off and trying to find something even 
more perfect than what people already have, then it becomes so hard to do. Um, over the years, I had a few successes, but luck is not always on my side. So um, in my subsequent trips there, I started to get very frustrated and since I just couldn't find many such things. Um, so even if I do, I will come home with a very few images that I like. So yeah, so I felt, I started to feel very unproductive and not able to create there. So I yep. actually stopped going there for a number of years. So then slowly I realized um, there's nothing wrong with the landscape. It's, uh, it's me and my restricted vision. Yeah. So I had very specific type of images that I want to capture that basically prevented me seeing from seeing many, many other opportunities. So, so I started to intentionally remind myself to ditch these expectations, just go there with open heart and fresh mind. And like everybody suggests, um, but then I found out it's after true, it's really helpful. Uh, if I be, if I'm uh, trying to be open, trying to take the time to observe and look at everything with intent, just be open to re be receptive, follow my intuition. Um, if I find something interesting in close range and, you know, and great pattern that requires a wide angle, that's great. But if not, a telephoto is immensely helpful to isolate, to extract fine details and visual interest. So I noticed that after I start doing this, I actually start getting images that I like. And I even start to get images I can call them my own. And even on Zabrowski Point, I started going back and I actually was able to get a few images. I thought, hmm, you know, I, now I can call this my own. Um, what's more importantly, I felt um, becoming productive again in Death Valley. So that, that's a very positive feeling. Yeah, it's funny as you were talking about your experience with that. I was thinking about my own experience with um, photographing fall colors here in Colorado because that's when my epiphany happened as well. You know, you, you, we as landscape photographers here in Colorado with fall color, it's like the perfect photo is mm. perfect color with awesome foreground and amazing aspen trees that are yeah. you, know, you know golden and orange, and then you have a snow-capped mountain with incredible clouds, right? Like that's all the ingredients have. Well, what happens when the color is bad and there's no clouds and there's no snow on the mountains, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't take that photo. So you have to completely reimagine what is possible. And um, fortunately, necessity is the mother of invention. And I opened up my, same as you, I was like, man, I just need to get my telephoto out and just look for things that speak to me and it's so fun too, you know. It's um, absolutely. It was. It, it became fun again. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that. Um, I love that we had a very similar experience with that because I think once you realize that you can just ditch your expectations and just show up anywhere and like just photograph what speaks to you with your kind of end vision in mind, I think it really opens up a ton of doors to kind of what we were talking about earlier in terms of personal expression and, and, you know, new ideas and things of that nature. So absolutely, absolutely, absolutely agree. Yeah. Well, let's continue on that thread of um, personal vision uh, because 
you know, from my perspective and many other photographers that I've spoken with about your work, you've kind of been able to refine your vision quite rapidly, at least from the outside. It looks like it's been a rapid transition. What would you say uh, was some of the things you've done in order to hone in such a succinct look uh, with your images? Mm, like, um, if I look back the recent five or six years, I, I was able to improve a lot. Like I mentioned that because I was able to spend a little more time in it. Um, but I think the previous years back to when I originally started, those classes I took and the early workshop I took and years of being exposed to other photographers' work, being inspired by them and the readings and all that, I think still had a big impact for my photography. It's all accumulative. Um, so I think I, I talked about how my uh, photography evolved over the years and all that, how I got in love with uh, black and white. But um, I think... Um, that's, I, I think once the technical aspect of, you know, master to some extent, the important thing is to go beyond that, to really focus on, you know, to dig deep on what, um, what my images can say about me and to, to, to basically focus on the personal expressive side. I think once I, um, try to focus on what, um, really interest me as a as a person as a photographer and just focus on that and focus on how can i make my images more uh, uh, personally expressive i felt my photography really improves and say more about me so i'm happy that at the beginning you said that if you can recognize if this picture is kind of uh, a little bit unique and it's my picture and you know that's that's one of the purpose i do photography yeah. So what would you say your photography says about you? Um, it's, it's hard to answer that questions. I'm also trying to, like I said, uh, uh, actually, I don't, even I cannot speak um, very clearly why black and white just caused a more profound response from me. Um, but um, so that's why I also mentioned that when I, um, review my portfolios and uh, I noticed um, some, a lot of pictures that have this um, hidden theme behind it that calls for imagination and mystery. And that's something I definitely like. Um, like even from the books I like to read and all that sort of, I'm more towards this direction. So, you know, maybe this is something um, that says about me. I don't like to answer the questions, but, um, I guess still uh, this is this is part of self discovery, but so I'm still trying to figure that out as well. No, oh, I love that. Um, there's, I mean, there's no wrong answer to the question, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one one question I had um, about something you had said earlier about um, going to kind of well known locations and, um, for lack of a better term, emulating other photographers or their image. I, I thought I thought your answer to that was very interesting in terms of respecting that photographer by not um, <laughs> creating the same image. And because um, that's the first time I've heard someone say that. Um, I, I was I'm hope, hoping you'd be willing to go down this rabbit hole with me for a minute, um, mm -hmm. especially given that you're you're from China and you've, you've experienced living there and here. Um, but I had a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine named Atanu, 
um, who is not from the United States either. Mm. And we were kind of talking about, and again, I'm going to paint with some, somewhat of a broad paintbrush here, but um, one of the things that we've observed um, is that a lot of people from kind of Eastern cultures uh, tend to do what you're describing. Like they go to those well-known spots and they try to get that exact replication of the image. And and his answer to that was kind of the opposite of what you said, oh. was that he thought it was like their way of kind of paying homage to, to that photographer and respecting them and mm. kind of saying like, this is a great piece of work and I want to um, kind of, I want to do the same thing. And by doing the same thing, I'm showing it respect. So I'm curious if you think there's a cultural component to that type of, that, that method of pursuing photography or, or maybe I'm just making this all up, but it's definitely something I feel like I've observed, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective. Oh, wow. That's an interesting thing to, um, to, here, I, I, it was it was is my first time to hear that as well. That um, you know, by reproducing it, it's a, it's a paying tribute. But I think I can understand from one side that you know sometimes I still remember when I went to uh, Teton one time um, and uh, was standing from the Snake River that where exactly Ansel Adam um, put his tripod on, I think, and the UN had a post, uh, has a sign, I think, at that place. Right, Obviously, and there's a thing that says, put your whole, put your tripod right here. <laughs> so, and, uh, and this was, this, the, the post, the, the sign will say, this was how it looked like, you know, a number of years ago when Ansel Adam took a picture and, you know, some trees got, you know, overgrown and this, you, you're not able to see this anymore, stuff like that. So, you know, I would take it, I would take the pictures. And I will show it to my friends and say, hey, exactly, I, I, I came here, I paid my homage, and I definitely, you know, I saw exactly what he saw, um, you know, things that, like that. But I, unless I feel my images have something um, tiny bit unique or special, I don't usually post them. So it's basically just for me to enjoy, to enjoy the memory, um, you know, even that respect is there and all that but it's more more for my, myself because i don't think the world needs another same uh <laughs> duplicated image from me and they have seen enough so um yeah that's basically what i said so just to expand on um the, the previous thing i said that if i feel certain composition because people are also um they're striving to come up with new ideas, new compositions, and people have their new visions. And a lot of talented photographers are out there. They're constantly creating new work and inspiring work. And uh, I also like to view other people's work a lot. Actually, um, getting inspired by other people's work is very important to me. Um, but and and I, and you can tell some of the, the picture definitely. Uh, showed uh, the photographer's uh, ideas and uh, ingenuity behind them, you know, how they figure out how they, um, you know, some unique angles or ideas and all that. Um, Like I said, I try to learn from them, but I don't want to run to to duplicate exactly the same thing Um, because I just have the thought that it's their vision, it's not mine. Uh, right, it's good to learn, but it's not good to reproduce. 
Do you think do you think there is something to be said for the idea that this idea of kind of replication is culturally rooted? Um you know what no. I mean cuz you think about like the technology sector, right? Like that's why the that's why Chinese imports are, you know, they're so they they make so much money because they're so good at taking a product that's already been made and then doing it the exact same way, but for way with way cheaper parts and way cheaper labor mm-hmm. costs, and so the price is way lower, and so people end up buying the kind of the knockoff version, um, and they're very good at doing it. Um, do you think that translates it all over into photography? Um, I actually never made that connection. So <laughs> yours the first time I actually uh, heard this way. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that, but I personally have never made these connections. But yes, it's, it's a, it's a fact that what you said, the knockoff is a fact, but they also nowadays there are more and more inventions and ingenuity that the, the Chinese, um, the technology sectors and industries are definitely more developed toward that direction. So DJI, for example, right? Oh, definitely. Totally, pro- yeah. yeah. Their product really, really top of the line, very creative. So I think definitely they're gearing towards that and there are a lot more coming up. Yeah, but- no, it was just a observation that I had with another photographer and you're the first uh, photographer from China that I've been able to talk to about it. So I was excited to okay. see if you, even if you if you thought we were just, um, or our idea was way out there or, or, <laughs> or what. <laughs> and like, I, I don't, you know, I don't, think there's anything wrong with that i just think it's interesting that it happens mm-hmm. you know um, but i like what you said about it mm, uh, you know i think you know things like the, the reason i mentioned it for another example right because see um i think uh at one time probably still popular that people started using you know the trees to frame the mountains uh in the compositions um you know you look at the mountains through the trees and I don't know if you know what I mean. And sure, suddenly yeah. there's many, many pictures are like that. Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, so just to give that example, I think what we learn, we should learn from that is, okay, that was a really good idea for the whoever f- first to figure out that composition. And, but what can we learn from them? Right. But I don't want to go to that place and take the exactly same thing or try to force it, even though the, the framing dynamic are very, appealing picture but I still because it's popular um I still won't do it so that's I think what that's what I meant that makes total sense all right well shifting gears a little bit it's one of my favorite types of questions to ask so what do you love about landscape photography and what purpose does it serve for you um I love outdoors but I think for me I think the bigger reason um is probably still due to personalities. Um, I'm not a people person. Uh, I'm, I'm not really good at you know um, socializing or networking or reaching out or you know communicating with people, especially uh, who I don't know really well. Or um, yeah, and and sometimes can be very even self-conscious or um, insecure. So. I prefer photography activities that do not need to directly communicate with people or depend on it. Uh, and landscape photography is um, it's just like that. Um, 
Well, to be clear, I don't I don't prefer solitude either. I what I really enjoy the most is to be out in the nature, photographing with one or two, basically very small group of friends. Yeah, and I really enjoy that type of setting. Um, and another thing is I work very slow, so that's why I probably will never be a very good wildlife or action or sports photographers and all that. Um, so uh, my purpose of doing photography is is actually not to get excitement or thrill, if I know if you know what I mean. Um, I I what I enjoy most from doing photography is actually because it lets me to slow down. It led me to take my time to observe, to discover, to think, um, you know, during the process of extracting things out, to compose um, and think about from the creativity side and things like that. So um, this is what I enjoy the most. So I think the landscape photography is the perfect genre uh, for that. I like that a lot too. But one of the things I've noticed about myself is that if I do it for... Like if I'm on a big trip, like 10 days or something, and if I do that type of photography where I'm taking my time and really just looking and all that, it, it's a, it's incredibly exhausting for mm-hmm. me to do that mm-hmm. um, because I, I am an extrovert. Um, <laughs> but I like to be, when I'm in nature, I like to be by myself or with like one or two other people, mm-hmm. like you said as well. Yeah. But I found that, um, I enjoy that approach as well, but I find it to um, it like really drains my creativity mm-hmm. because I'm so focused on um, my surroundings mm-hmm. and being open to what I see that by the end of the day or the session or whatever, I'm just like, I'm ready to go eat dinner and take a nap or you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's me though. Um, that's why I, I really uh, enjoy doing it with friends because share you know, that feeling or thoughts, you, you have some, somebody to share that and you can still talk. It's not like completely boring, right? And to me, I, I think probably it's a little bit opposite. I actually uh, like that process and I think that actually very satisfying to me to go through that. But it, I actually rarely got that opportunity to do this for um, um, extended period. Because you know, my obviously I have other responsibilities at home and all that, so um, I actually would like would really you know enjoy doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um it changes your approach, I think, for sure, when you have mm. more time. Yeah. Um, because you also, at least for me, I don't feel as obligated, you know, to always get up to shoot sunrise or always stay. Like I'm, if I have a good day and like it's in the afternoon, I feel like I accomplished a lot of really fun stuff Mm. sometimes okay with just you know taking the rest of the day and enjoying just enjoying being out in nature you know exactly yeah um okay well shifting gears again (laughs) yeah um let's talk a little bit about uh post-processing because i think that's likely a lot of what makes your photography come to life um you know your work reminds me a lot of the late jack curran um, in terms of kind of how you use uh, dodging and burning. Um, and I know he used Lightroom primarily, but really a lot of what he was doing was to create depth and mystery and kind of that three-dimensionality and really kind of accentuating and de-accentuating different aspects of light in the scene. So I'm really curious kind of what's your uh, general approach to post-processing when you sit down and 
I would also love to know if like you've pre-visualized that in the field or if you're responding to it when you get home and you see it on the computer screen. Mm. So I know that was a lot to take in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You might need to remind me the later question, but no, at first good. I want to come to the uh, the first one. Um, so I'm flattered that uh, um, my work reminds you of Jack Curran's work. Uh, he's, he's obviously a master in, that, in his field. Um, oh, actually, first of all, I was... I want to mention that I was really shocked and sad when I heard his passing and last year, and it, it is uh, indeed a big loss for the photography community. Um, I don't personally know him, um, never met him in person, um, but we are connected on Instagram. Um, his work is obviously very inspiring, and he was always very encouraging and supportive to my work, So, and I really appreciate that. So coming to the um, post-processing part, um, especially for post-processing for, um, for black and white, I shoot in color, um, then convert color to black and white in the post. Um, I learned my fundamental Photoshop techniques from John Shaw back, you know, quite a few years ago, um, uh, from his eBooks published, you know, many years ago. I think he's one of the earlier one that embraced digital photography in his league. Um, then um, for the recent years, my over, overall workflow is actually heavily influenced by Gai Tao. Um, I studied his um, creative uh, landscape photography book. He has a few books um, where he explained from concept, visualization, uh, composition and you know to post processing the whole flow, and my approach and the philosophy in post processing are all quite influenced by him. Um, my workflow generally has um, uh, most of them have have a like consistent general structure and uh, principle, but uh, each image would have uh, a lot of open choices and decisions to customize. I like to I like to customize for each image um, because for me it's like every time I open a new image to process it's like a facing a small new challenge uh, for me to bring out the full potential uh, for that particular image. Um, so that, that, yeah, that kind of leads me to my follow up to that because it sounds like well I'll just ask the question. So when you're in the field and you're capturing the image. Are you already seeing kind of that potential that could be unlocked in Photoshop? Um, yeah, actually, you you asked for the the visualizing that you're right. I do, and some uh, and a lot of, a lot of time this comes naturally, right? You're not trying to force it, right? Because um, intuition just happens, and when I look at the scene, and I would Im- immediately um, kind of imagine what the end results sort of will like. Sometimes it still can be vague. Sometimes it's very clear. Um, I would definitely make a mental note on that. Um, and then when I come back uh, in post-processing, I would do two things, actually. Well, I, one thing or two things. Actually, I would sit on it for a while. I don't usually immediately process my images. I would sit on it. And that works for me because, like I said, I don't travel that often. So there's plenty of time between trips um, for me to sit on it. So yeah. I sit on it 
And the purpose of sitting on it is for me to come back to look at these images with relatively fresh mind. So I can look at them technically with a more objective, uh, from more objective side than to see the problem. Because once we're emotionally uh, invested in it, um, I probably will not see some of the technical problems in the image. I may select the wrong images to process, or maybe I will process um, not seeing it or not able to bring the full potential. However, I will still try to uh, remember what I felt at the scene um, it, because the image uh, creation is for myself, is to for me to convey or communicate what I felt at the scene, not to um, not not because this will this would make a popular image or this will impress others. So the goal, so that's not my goal. So I will respect what I feel or what I felt at the scene, but trying to look at it from a more uh, objective technical side. So that's basically my general approach. Yeah, you're not the first person to suggest that kind of approach to me. And it's starting to rub off on me a little bit because of, I've noticed when I, if I come home from a trip and I start processing the images immediately, I do exactly what you said. I process the wrong photos. Um, <laughs> I overlook things that are probably flawed because I'm so excited about it. So I think there's a lot of merit to that approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Um, on, on the other hand, I also heard people talking about try to separate, you know, yourself out from your initial feeling because that will make you more objective. Um, so I, I think we should do that probably only from technical point of view. I don't know if I can ever separate them completely, but sure. you have to look at it from, you know, technical point of view, right? But I think, you know, the reason we make we make the photo, uh, photograph is because there's some feeling we want to want to convey. So I still want to attach to my original thought and ideas or intuition when I initially saw the scene. So yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, it's cool. What um, I'm curious more um, from a just general perspective in terms of when you're editing your images. I've noticed a lot of your photographs have a lot of ton of dodging that's been done to kind of push down some of the tonality in some areas, but then a, a lot of um, uh, burning that happens in order to accentuate other areas. So kind of what, how are you trying to use those techniques to create visual flow or to, to tell a story or to convey that emotion? Like what is your, when you're looking at the image, like what do you kind of, what's going through your mind? Um. So the dodging and burning thing is basically to play with the tones. And I like to play with tones. And I think I mentioned before that probably part of the reason I actually like black and white, because to me, somehow I think color should be more representative of the reality. And in black and white, I I, I feel I have a little bit more freedom to play with the tones. Um, but uh, uh, so, so, um, so I, I just want to mention one thing that I still feel that I need to respect and stay true to the original physical forms and the relations. And I think that's very important, very important to me. Um, like, for example, right, 
and I, I mentioned that I love my photos to be able to spark imaginations, but I want that based on the physical truth and realism and not based on the uh, a fantasy world I created in Photoshop. Um, so I would love my viewers look at the images and say, oh, I can observe and see things this way or isolate or compose this way, then the scene or subject can become so different or magical. Um, so this is what I strive for. This is where I think I would like to show the creativity here. Um, so coming back to the tones, because in black and white, tonal separation is naturally very important for black and white photography, because in color, we have color, they can tell apart subjects very easily. But when after they convert to black and white, um, some of that uh, separations are gone, especially if the subjects reflect this, the same amount of light. So it really depends on photographer to decide how to convert them. And uh, I, like I said, I do think I have a little bit of freedom to decide whether I want this subject to have bigger contrast against its uh, surroundings or neighboring object, uh, subject, or I want them to virtually disappear, right? So I think this tonal separation is very important to help me um, to emphasize what I want viewers to see, but kind of um, quote, quote, de-emphasize what I don't want them to uh, to see or I want uh, to get rid of distractions. So, but to do this, um, I actually do not even need to clone things out if I'm able to just make them, their tones very similar at their adjacent environment and pe because people will not pay attention to them anymore. Right. But it's still there. Of, you just yeah, really, exactly. You just only really, really notice it. If you zoom in, all <laughs> the details are actually still there. Um, so do we, do we feel this is overly done? Do we feel this is not real anymore? I think that's actually very, very much debatable, but um, I don't do composites. I don't, you know, I want, I want to stay with, the, the physical reality there. But and then at the same time, I think playing with tonal separations are extremely important and uh, uh, for black and white photography. Oh, I mean, they're both, they're both methods of creative expression. I just think one of them is uh, a cheap trick. I hate to say that. And the other one requires a great deal of thought and kind of mm -hmm. an idea of what you're trying to convey. I mean, if I'm just going to make a mountain get bigger or make a dune look taller than it really is or whatever, like the sole purpose of that is for shock and awe, <laughs> right? And it's not really that difficult to accomplish. Whereas I think tonal, you know, tonal separation and, and thinking about where you want that tonal separation to happen. I think there's a lot more personal expression and, and, creative expression involved in that but that's just me yeah yeah i i, I tend to agree with you absolutely uh, and uh, uh i know i think post-processing subject uh, have been um discussed in your podcast quite a few times and oh just a, a couple times <laughs> and there was a famous famous um episode about it which i think a lot of people have heard um um and uh, i and i agree on both sides um, to some extent, and, and I do agree uh, that if we look at the history of photography, 
that these techniques have always been there, and and they have been you know accept, widely accepted by the art world as part of creative ways doing photography, uh, right? Um, so I I personally don't think it is these techniques that are problematic. Uh, it's about whether the photographs created by these techniques would mislead audience or not. That's being the problem. Um, if I see a beautiful image and I'm very impressed by it, as you mentioned, and then later on find out, oh, that's completely different, um, then I would feel I, you know, being lied to, to be honest with you. And if and I know certain people would actually go chase these images and go to the locations and then totally find out, oh, that's not the thing, that's not the same. I can definitely understand the feeling. So I don't think this is right. However, if the photographer clearly states their intention, clearly states, um, uh, you know, how is even their creative process, then I think it's okay with me. Um, I actually would appreciate their, you know, the whatever the fantasy world, you know, the photographer creates. And in fact, if if he or she creates with, you know, with taste and it demonstrates their brain power and the, I would actually really admire that because it's actually it's very hard to to do. It's very hard to make it right. There, you know, there's a whole yeah. big category: digital art, digital manipu- manipulations yeah, for that. Really well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, not everybody is actually capable to do do it well. So, kudos to their creativity, I would think. But unfortunately, I think sometimes is it can mislead, and I think that's the thing we should all avoid. Um, and, um, and and each, you know, if you ask 100 photographers, they may have 100 different answers or opinions towards this. So I think both sides, you know, have certain merits. For myself, like I said, I want to respect and stay true to physical forms. And, um, you know, that's basically just my, my own opinion. Yeah, I think for me, the intent piece is really important. Yes. And, you know, it's hard to attach your intent to every caption or whatever but I that's think true what often, what often frustrates me is what we see is that the intent is often to get people to believe that this was something that they actually witnessed or experienced or whatever and there's no mention of the fact that it wasn't and i think <laughs> you know like well i've talked about it a thousand times on the podcast yeah. but it's i have no issues with it like call it your fantasy scapes you know or whatever Mm -hmm. like good job you made an amazing piece of art but it's often presented as look at this amazing scene that i witnessed or oh my gosh this type of thing is so cool to see and it's like you didn't see that (laughs) so (laughs) to me the the intent of, of deception is kind of embedded within that language about how we talk about our photography you know i think i think that's where the differentiation is is important yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone looks at a black and white photo and says, that's not real. You know? Like, yeah. We don't see black and white. You exactly. Know? That's not how you see the world. So that's actually, I think, why black and white has some distinctive advantages. Mm. I agree. Like, it's it's already right. abstracted. Yes. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, I know that you are planning on attending um, and presenting at the next Outsiders Conference. I'm curious uh, what you'll be presenting on. Oh, I actually don't know yet. 
Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, and the organizers will discuss with us soon, I think. Um, so you but, just know you're going. Yes. Um, but I would assume that would be something related to or at least include the topics about black and white landscape, I would think. Um, but just a few words about um, the Outsiders Photography Conference. I'm really glad that you brought it up. So um, for people who do not know about it, Yet it will be this conference will be on March uh, next year, March four, uh, March fourth uh, to sixth next year, two thousand twenty-two, in Kanab, Utah. It it will be an awesome conference, and you know it's a cool place to connect with people um, and learn from each other. And they the presenters are awesome. Um, and the keynote presenter is Paul Nicklund. And there are many other like well-established and talented uh, photographers presenting, and I'm actually very, uh, I'm very honored to be invited to join them. And in fact, I'm a long-term fan um, to a lot of them, so I'm very thrilled to be there to meet them and to learn from them. So um, I think a lot of people would uh, be able to learn and enjoy it as well. So the website for the conference is outsider, outsidersphoto.com. So, you know, well, yeah. thank you very much. Well, well, awesome. This has been so much fun. I had a blast and it was interesting to hear that we have a lot of the same um, perspectives on the approaches <laughs> and, and things of that nature. So that's always cool too. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I will say just for the record, I'm not the one that brought up composites. So there. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so last thing, uh, who would you recommend uh, our listeners learn more about or that we should have here on the podcast? Uh, okay. So this is something I actually prepared a little. Um, so it's a tough question to answer since many, many photographers that I admire have already been on your podcast. Um, and I, I think you're looking for some variety and some uniqueness, right? Yes, um, definitely. So I came up with a few names that I think people probably would be interested and benefit from listening to them, um, but not in particular order. So the first one I would recommend is Yan Zhang. Um, he is an accomplished Chinese-born landscape photographer based in Australia. And he has developed a passion for alpine mountaineering and alpine photography over the years and has take, undertaken quite a few expeditions in recent years. Um, he's, I think he, he especially focused in mountains in New Zealand. Uh, besides photography, he's actually a college professor who specializes in artificial intelligence research. Um, I found his study in generating deep mountain landscape images using artificial intelligence and machine learning quite interesting. Yeah, I was just trying to find him. On Instagram, it sounds like some really interesting work. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the second name is Si Ming Mei. Um, I would need to send these names separately. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll definitely put links to their to their work on on the show notes as well. Yeah, and she is also accomplished Chinese-born nature and wildlife photographer based in Houston, Texas. And in recent years. Um, her main focus is on crane conservation. Um, as a volunteer photographer and ambassador for International Crane Foundation, and she 
you know, travel around uh, the world, working with local conservationists, um, specifically for uh, crane conservation. Um, Sounds like she would get along well with my mom. <laughs> she just went down to um, Basque, to, to Apache in New Mexico to photograph cranes. Mm, nice. She's obsessed with birds. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, other than nature and the wildlife, Siming uh, actually has pretty diverse interests too. And she uh, also focused on photographing traditional local craftsmanship and heritages around the world. So, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Her her interests are also like diverse and, and quite interesting. And the third name uh, is Victoria Hack, and yeah. I think that's a well known name. And um, she's a multi genre photographer based in BC, Canada, and she does landscape or environmental portraits and so much more. And I say she's quite successful. Um, I'm very excited that I will finally meet her in, next March in the in the Outsiders Conference. Yeah, and learn from her. Her environmental portraits are killer. Yeah, They're absolutely. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Um, the fourth one um, is is actually the name of a project this photographer created. The name is the Atlas of Beauty, and this project is created and done by a Romanian photographer. Um, I actually don't know how to pronounce it properly. I'll try Mihela Norak. And I've been following her account on Instagram, and I'm just fascinated by it. It's, um, you know, Mahela has been undertaking this enormous personal project, traveling around the world in the past five, six years, capturing um, the natural beauty of women in different parts of the world. And these women are usually the ordinary people she met during travel. And uh, you, you, can, you should definitely check out her Instagram. Uh, well, this project's Instagram page. And her portraits really showcased the their natural beauty. And But it was more that the, usually the background stories about these women are even more fascinating. Um, and the, so it's kind the, of like uh, Humans of New York or... Whatever. Something like that, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, yeah, the project actually became very popular and has a large following. So I, I, cool. I've been following her work. Awesome. Um, the... I think that's the fifth name. Um, his name is Robert Hackett, H-E-C-H-T. Uh, he's Portland, Oregon-based. Um, I got to know him earlier this year through Len's work, um, as his, uh, his work was one of the main features in the February issue. Uh, I was very impressed how he's able to discover and photograph the beauty from the very ordinary and the mundane scenes, even just in... In the household. Oh. Um, then I noticed he was well published in Len's work, which is quite an accomplishment for me to me. So I chatted with him online a bit, and I'm quite um, uh, amazed by his insights on photography, especially on how to come up with ideas for themed series uh, of concept or projects, mm. etc. So nice. yeah, I think he can provide his lifelong experiences and stories of his photography journey awesome the last one i think is also it last one is a very well-known name uh bruce percy and probably yeah. a lot of people recommended him as well um, um so i actually only discovered him last year and i, I became a fan um my photography idols if if i can say so has always been have um guy tao and alex your friend norega 
Um, now I also discovered uh, Bruce Percy. Um, so I'm quite fascinated by how he sees and interprets the landscape. Yeah, it's interesting because um, this is solely based on my memory, but I feel like his work is like yours, only inverted. He plays <laughs> a lot more with whites than, than blacks. Yeah. 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 Actually, he has a very distinct personal style, but um, you know, I you know I have no interest to to mimic his style. But I what what, what I found very fascinating is how he sees the things, how he isolates things, how he simplifies yeah. things. Yeah, his work is very simplified, but it's still awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So that's my list. Great the, list. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more about projects actually for Patreon. So if people want to learn more about one of your projects, they can check out our conversation over there. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, thank you to Huebo for joining me today on the podcast. I had a wonderful time speaking with you about your journey as a photographer and your approach to refining your vision in this craft. Keep up the stunning work. You're quite an inspiration to so many people. Well, if you enjoyed our chat, you can join us for additional conversation over on Patreon while supporting the show financially. We discuss her new project, Nature's Botanical Sand Art, which is a stunning collection of images recently featured in Lenswork magazine. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen. Lastly, I would be remiss if I did not make mention of Sarah Marino's newest ebook, Lessons from the Landscape Yellowstone. Sarah's images and writing in this ebook are really phenomenal. I honestly think that this book should be mandatory reading for any nature photographer in this day and age. It is filled with accessible and down-to-earth wisdom that I think can really take your work to the next level. Check it out by visiting the link in our show notes. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.